You are listening to the District Church Podcast. To learn more about us, find us online at districtchurch.org. Well, welcome again, everyone. Thank you for joining us for online. Uh, Before I begin, in the spirit of thanksgiving and of gratitude, I would really like to thank Pastor Aaron, Pastor Amy, Kevin, and Brian for just entrusting me to preach from this uh, stage today. And thank you to all those who are joining us online uh, to hear the word of the Lord today. I pray that it's um, meaningful to you and touches your life. My wife Hannah and I were able to host a few friends over at our house for Thanksgiving uh, this year, and it just reminds me of how much God has blessed us with this church community. Uh, And I do not take this opportunity lightly. But with Thanksgiving over, the new year is really quickly approaching. And every time the earth gets a year older, we take it as an opportunity to better ourselves. On January 1st, a wave of New Year's resolutions sweep across the world. According to research, about 43% of Americans make it a goal to eat healthier in the new year. 48% resolve to lose weight, 53% resolve to save more money. The largest category of New Year's resolutions is physical health, and the second largest is self-improvement, probably because we just spent the last two months running ourselves ragged with holiday celebrations and travel. So come January, New Year, New Me becomes the cultural slogan of this season. New Year, New Me personally feels like a lot of pressure to put on ourselves. So I'd like to really offer us a paradigm shift, a new new year. Next Sunday begins a season of the church calendar that we call Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word arrival. This is one of my favorite times of the year in the Christian calendar. And this Christian calendar I'm mentioning is the way that the church has really been telling time for hundreds of years. Instead of days and months, it provides a framework of seasons of worship that are different lengths. You have four weeks of Advent, 12 days of Christmas, 40 days of Lent, 50 days of Easter, and those are just the big ones. And here's actually a photo of the calendar. It's kind of a simple photo to get you a glimpse and a visual of of what this looks like. You can see all the seasons, you can see Advent in there. I believe that this calendar acts really as a tool of discipleship to help us embody the gospel narrative on a yearly basis. And Advent marks the new year of the church. The year in the church calendar starts the first Sunday of Advent. And the new year is coming soon. In fact, it comes in seven days, next Sunday. Uh, I bet you didn't realize January 1st is actually the second New Year's celebration, at least for us Christians. And so our year begins with this thing we call Advent. Not a time for resolutions, not a time for gym memberships, but a four-week season of observance and reflection of God's arrival, His Advent, His coming. To say more about Advent, I find it helpful sometimes to define things by first defining what they're not. So when I say Advent as a season of reflection on the coming of God, 
I am actually not talking about Christmas and the birth of Christ. Many think that the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day are all about preparing for the Nativity. But Advent actually looks beyond that. Advent begins the church year by looking towards the end of all years. The end of time, actually. Advent is a time of reflection on the second coming of Christ. It is significant that when the calendar was put together, Advent was set to begin when the winter was on its way. When the days are getting much shorter, the nights are getting longer, the cold is creeping in. This season can feel isolating, distant, dark, and frankly, kind of depressing. Uh, I never really experienced seasonal depression until I moved to DC and it's real. When the days get shorter and colder, Advent lives in that tension. The tension that even in the midst of the darkness of our world, there is a hope that the God who had already come once will return again. Last month, I had an awesome opportunity to uh, visit the country of Jordan uh, to visit one of our church partners, Questcope, which is, they're an incredible organization. Uh, I'm so grateful to partner with them. And I was joined by Tech Kim, who's on our staff, and it was just an incredible trip. And I'd love to share more about my experience in the country uh, with Questcope, but that is for another sermon. In fact, I could take a whole sermon talking about it. But I have this memory where we were flying to Jordan, and there was this image that stuck with me on the plane. We had been flying for many hours. It was dark. I was tossing and turning, trying to sleep in the airplane seat. And I woke up a few hours uh, later, and I looked out my window, and I was just perplexed. The sky towards the back of the plane was pitch black. But ahead of me, I started to see a glimpse of the sun rising. It was like I was stuck in time. I was somehow witnessing darkness and light just fight each other for space. Like watching the sunrise from the window of an airplane on a long flight, the darkness of our world can feel overwhelming. But during Advent, we catch a glimpse of the light to come. You know the light is coming, you just have to wait for it. Advent is the season of being stuck in this in-between, dark and light, between the realities of this painful, suffering, wrought world, and the hope for Christ's return. That is why we've entitled the series, The Coming of God. Advent goes beyond the first coming of Jesus at Christmas to a deeper, almost sorrowful longing for him to return and to do something new. But it begs this question, who is this God that came to us and what does it mean <clears throat> for him to return? On the screen, you're gonna see some incredible art. Uh, this is called a triptych, which is one piece of art made of three individual pieces. And this is our main series kind of image here. An artist in our church, Christina Muthern, hand carved each of the lithographs in this triptych for us to reflect on this Advent season. 
I'd encourage you to look up Christina and see some more of her artwork. She's just an incredible, incredible artist. The panel tells really one unique story in three different parts. That's what the triptych is. Each part of this piece represents a different redemptive work of God's coming. As we long for the second coming of Christ in the Advent season, it's important to remember his first coming. On the far left, we see an artistic representation of Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Eve sitting below her. Now, just a reminder, these are meant to be artistic representations. They're not historical statements that we're making. So that's why you'll see modern takes and differences in their clothing, their appearance. Christina actually used two women in our church as models for Mary and Eve, which I think just brings the beauty to life in this image. There's so much symbolism and hidden meaning uh, in this image of the new thing that God does through the virgin birth. The gold flame above Mary represents the work of the Holy Spirit in her. The serpent that once tempted Eve into sin is crushed by the foot of Mary who carries the Messiah into her womb. The fig leaves on Eve's shirt call back to Genesis. The beams of light representing God's breaking into the world, heaven coming to earth. Next week, Pastor Amy is gonna share with us why Mary and the virgin birth are an important foreshadowing of the redemption to come. In the second image, we see the infant Christ marked by a halo. He's wrapped in the light of heaven, descending into the desert. You can see the hands of God holding the infant Christ like swaddling cloth. The sand represents Adam, who was formed from dust, and it juxtaposes how Christ is the new Adam, who does not come from dust, but he comes from heaven itself. As a part of living in the tension of Advent is remembering that Christ came once to bring a path for salvation by taking on flesh to show us a glimpse of a new humanity. And finally, and the third image, the true hope of Advent, the second coming of Christ. The Lamb of God reigns over the new heaven and the new earth. The ultimate new thing where after God judges the living and the dead and all things are redeemed, reclaimed, and renewed. This is Advent, an old hope for a new thing. Now let's turn to the book of Isaiah and uh, chapter 43 that Pastor Kevin read uh, right before this. In the prophetic books of scripture, we often uh, find two different types of prophecy. First, there's universal prophecies, as many scholars refer to them. And these are prophecies that extend beyond time, beyond space, location, context. They're messages speaking into a distant future and perhaps a greater reality of the entire world that is to come. Second, what many call, we see these local prophecies. These are moments when the prophets relay a message from God to a very specific people in a specific time for a specific context. These prophecies often include distinct signs of God and how he will save the listener from a particular situation. In Isaiah 43, many biblical scholars argue that we're reading really a local prophecy. The prophet finds himself 
relaying a message to the people of God who have experienced just tragedy after tragedy. After King Solomon, the nation of Israel was split in two. You have the northern kingdom of Ephraim and the southern kingdom of Judah. Those in Ephraim were conquered by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC, and those in Judah were exiled by the Babylonians in 6th century BC. Now Isaiah is specifically prophesying to the people of Judah, a nation and a people just torn to shreds with nothing left. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple, once the only place where heaven touched earth and God came to his meet, meet his people, has been demolished. To lose their temple, their home, their lives could only mean one thing to these people. God must not be as powerful as they thought. In fact, he may just be a God of history, a God of old, who, who saved only in stories. Their entire identity as a people of God have been rattled by this new reality. Understanding the way the people of Judah heard this prophecy is essential to understanding where we're going today. In the first 39 chapters, we read the prophet condemning the idolatry of the people of Israel, prophesying their coming exile to Babylon, <clears throat> and reminding them that God is Israel's Holy One. But in chapter 40, there's a shift, and, and it's a big one. The prophet is still orienting the people of God, the people to God's holiness. But in a serious change of tone, the author begins to prophesy the return of the exiles from Babylon back to Judah. After 70 years in exile, for really the first time, Isaiah was communicating hope to the people of Israel that they would return to their promised land. This is a huge change from the condemnation that led to exile in the first half of the book. A change in tone, but it's not a change in core message. <clears throat> because God, the Holy One of Israel, has not changed in his character or his mission. Isaiah was describing the very nature of who God is. He's making a theological statement. And he starts this by, promise, by proclaiming God is Savior. Isaiah 43, 11 through 12, through the prophet, God says, I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord that I am God. We would be doing ourselves a disservice to quickly pass over these two verses. God is not simply stating that Israel is helpless on their own and needs someone to step in, but that he alone is the only one who can step in. Soon after chapter 43, God declares that Cyrus, the king of the Persians, will be his tool to return the exiles to their home. How easy would it be for the people of Judah to return home and praise the king of Persia? Besides, God was no longer active in their lives, right? He let them get exiled. Why would he save them now? Israel was convinced 
that God had abandoned them and they risked believing that King Cyrus was the maker and means of their salvation. But the prophet calls them to a wider aperture. The king of Persia was merely a tool in the God of salvation's hands, used to return the Israelites back to Judah. God stepped into time and ignited the salvation of the Israelites. Advent engulfs us in the reality that when salvation comes, God is always the acting agent, the great initiator of salvation. It's a season that takes seriously the theological declaration found in Isaiah 43. Fleming Rutledge uh, puts it this way. She's a theologian and specifically talks about Advent. She says, you and I cannot make heaven break in. Unassisted human nature cannot turn the hearts of the children to the parents and the hearts of the parents to the children. Only God can do this. This is the fundamental truth of the Advent message. Unassisted human nature is under the sign of the wrath of God, but light is breaking in, brothers and sisters. The dawn is coming. Human nature is unassisted no longer. I read a prayer during Thanksgiving this year uh, before we started eating as a group and friends and family. And there was a line that stood out to me in the prayer after reading this list of gratitudes to God for things like creation and community. And the line said, we thank you also for those disappointments and failures that lead us to acknowledge our dependence on you and you alone. Oh, how I needed you, Lord. How often I'm reminded of my deep need for a savior. But Advent doesn't just remind us of our need for the Savior, but that we are assured of God's resolute power, authority, and love to redeem a people that cannot redeem themselves. Psalm 16 says, apart from you, I have no good thing. God is our Savior. Isaiah 43.13 goes on to say, Yes, and from ancient of days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? In both the image of Christ descending as an infant to the earth and the new creation we see in the art pieces that you'll see on the screen here, you'll notice a consistent theme, and that's the hands of God. In the far right image, God's hand holds his son like a swaddling cloth. In the middle image, God's hands cradle the new creation. God surely delivers his people out of the grips of chaos, fear, and suffering. But more importantly, he will not allow those he loves to be ripped from his grip. The verse says, no one can deliver out of my hand. What God holds, no one steals away. Jesus reminds us of this, uh, this truth when he says in the Gospel of John, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Last year, I had the privilege of officiating two weddings, which is really becoming uh, one of my favorite ministerial duties. It's just a blessing to witness two people wrapped together by the promises of God. And I have a favorite line in the wedding liturgy uh, that comes after the couple says their vows, after they exchange rings, after they kiss. I announce the couple, everyone cheers, and then with about as much gusto as I can muster, I say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And I don't just love this liturgy because the word asunder is so fun to say, although it is. I love it because I get to end the ceremony with a prayer of preservation, a prayer that the hands of God would wrap so tightly around the newlyweds that no power could tear them apart. Just like the covenant of marriage, God made a covenant with Israel one that was so tightly bound in his loving hands that even Israel's idolatry, sinfulness, and abandonment couldn't tear it apart. God would not just save his people. He keeps them wrapped in his loving embrace. God is the covenant keeper. God and God alone was the savior of Israel. And when he works, when he acts, when he makes a covenant, no power in heaven or hell can undo it. God's action also often involves uh, creation when there seems to only be destruction. Isaiah 43, 18 through 19 says, forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I could preach a whole sermon uh, on the importance of seeking beauty in this world and, and witnessing the creation of God. And I wish I was an artist, but at the very least, I can enjoy other people's work. That's why I'm so excited about the artwork that Christina made for this series. Created things compel us to the realities of God beyond just our heart, or beyond just our head, but into our hearts and our bodies. But as much as I, I love art and artists like Christina, verses like this remind me that all human art is derivative, which is a strong word. <laughs> but it's all a reflection of God's creation. True, beautiful art is just a reflection of the first and the most true artist that is God. God created the earth and all that dwells in it. He formed humanity, he cast the stars in the sky, he flooded the earth with vast oceans, he painted the deserts and carved the mountains, he is the only one capable of creating something truly new. After 70 years of exile and the destruction of all that the people of Judah hold dear, 
I'm sure that the idea of a new thing was just near unimaginable. To the Israelites, Yahweh was just a God who used to deliver, a God who once initiated an exodus, once rescued his people from Egyptian oppression, a God who once created the heavens and the earth, but no longer. The past, it was just distant. It was hardly even a memory. In Isaiah 43, God was not saying to forget those parts of who he is, but to stop relying on the promises of the past and put their hope in the future into the new things that he will do. God was not calling his people to action, but assuring them of his. He was promising a new way when there seemed like there was no way. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann once said in Isaiah 43:18, the breach between the old and the new becomes so deep that hope takes over remembrance altogether. God is the only true creator. Israel's only hope in chaos. He's the only one who makes a truly new path when they can't even imagine one in the first place. And when God does something new, it makes the old things obsolete. This new thing is not just the old in a new form. It's not innovation. It's not repetitive history. But it's an act of redemption that is somehow unexpected and unexplainable. And so, in just a moment, the salvation of the people of Judah goes from remembered past to an experienced future. New Year's is just around the corner, like we mentioned earlier. 2024 is peaking out, it's quickly approaching. Every New Year's is filled with these lavish resolutions to better ourselves, like we mentioned. To work out more, to eat healthier, to journal regularly, read more, and so on and so forth. January is more dedicated to new things. A time where we put our hope in our own hands, our own imaginations. But the new things of God are beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And that is the hope of Advent. Revelation 21 says, and the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The same God who promised the people of Judah salvation in their darkest days of exile has a new promise. And this promise is not a local prophecy. It's not for a specific group, for a specific time, for a specific place. This is a promise 
for all who draw near to him. A promise, his promise does not rely on our own strength. Thank God, our own works, our own righteousness. No New Year's resolution can live up to the sheer glory that will come when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, to redeem what was lost in the garden, to make right what was wrong, to bring justice to the oppressed, to bring peace to the chaos, to bring light in the darkness, to bring hope to the hopeless, to make a new heaven, a new earth. God is still our savior, our covenant keeper, our only creator. Do you not perceive it? W.H. Auden was a Christian poet during World War II, when the world seemed on all accounts to be ending. During that strife, he wrote a long-form poem uh, for Advent and Christmas called For the Time Being. In the midst of everything happening in our world right now, multiple wars, violence, injustice, suffering. This excerpt feels pertinent as we close our time together. We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. So even now, as the days get longer, the suffering in our world seems immeasurable. Injustice, tragedy, they know no bounds. There is an old hope for a new thing. It's more sturdy than anything you can promise yourself in January. Somehow it's it's just as miraculous as the virgin birth we'll celebrate in Christmas. During Advent, we long, dare I say, demand for the miracle of Christ's return. This is the hope of not just Advent, it's the hope of the gospel. That there is a God who sees you, knows you, sacrificed himself for you, that you may experience his full redemptive power. And let me tell you, I will not tire of preaching this gospel. Next week begins our new year. Next week, we don't just magically stop feeling the weight of sin and suffering and darkness that pervades our world, but we turn our eyes to the light of Christ that outshines darkness. To follow Christ is to be a person of the in-between, to live in the reality of the now and the not yet, that Christ came once, bringing with him a way of salvation, but he will come again. Advent is an old hope for a new thing. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, for taking on flesh, for giving us a glimpse of heaven breaking into this world, for a way of salvation to commune with you. 
And Lord, right now, his hearts are heavy. Even as we, we step out of a, a, a couple days of gratitude and thanksgiving of who you are and what you're doing, with the reality of the world surrounding that gratitude, we look towards the light of heaven. We look towards the coming, rising of the sun to a new creation, to the redemption of all things. Lord, we pray for a miracle, for the one that stands outside of time, for the Alpha and Omega to break in and to do a new thing in this world. In your holy name we pray, amen.